this time. And, and Lord, I do pray that you'd help my voice just to hold out. And, and, um, and Lord, it, it isn't about my voice. It isn't about, um, you know, that. It's about your word going forth. And, and Lord, I pray that it would. And that tonight as we look at these chapters, we see it's a very dark time in the house of Israel, in the house of Judah. And the reason is because there's rebellion. There's uh, turning away from you. And Lord, we see what sin does, and we see what happens when a nation turns away from you. And when the light is gone, darkness begins to fill in. And so, Lord, I pray that you help us to make application tonight, and Lord, that we would be attentive because as we do come in on Wednesdays, perhaps it's been a long day for most of us, if not all of us. We've had long days uh, today of work and, and other things that we've done. Perhaps there are some here that haven't even had dinner. So, Lord, I pray that you feed us right now with the word of God and that you would open our ears to hear what it is that you want to say to us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So as we continue in our study of Second Kings, of course, we're dealing with that history of Israel where it's divided. There is the northern ten tribes called the House of Israel, and they began with Jeroboam being the king, the first king of Israel, and Jeroboam would set up two places of idol worship, one in Bethel and one in Dan in the northern part of the country, and the people were going to those uh, places, temples that were dedicated to the golden calf, so they were involved in idol worship, and every successive king after Jeroboam the first is involved in idol worship, and many of them continued in the sins of Jeroboam. And we ended last time, before we went on our Christmas uh, and New Year's break, that we ended with Jeroboam II that is reigning at this time, um, and he actually is reigning during the time where the house of Israel is actually prosperous. It's about 793 B.C. He ruled from about 793 to 753 B.C., and the nation is strong economically, it's strong militarily, but spiritually, it is very, very sick. And at this time, as, as you read Jeroboam, there is, uh, as he's re, uh, reigning there in the house of Israel, there are the prophets that God has sent to speak to Jeroboam II and to the people of Israel, trying to get them once again to turn back to the Lord, trying to get them to repent from their idol worship. And we see that Amos was on the scene. Amos uh, was there as he is uh, giving that message at Bethel, Bethel where the golden calf was. Uh, there is Hosea. He would be actually the last of the prophets that would come on the scene, speaking to the house of Israel before they would go off into captivity. He comes on the scene about 750 B.C. And Israel is so bad spiritually um, that they're pretty much like what it was like when the Canaanites were they're in the land before Joshua came in and drove out the Canaanites. There's violence. There's deep immorality and depravity that has taken place in, in the people. Even though it was externally and economically prosperous and militarily strong, spiritually very sick and, uh, and very, very much depravity that has taken over the nation. Now, in the southern uh, part of the nation, the house of Judah, we know that they were doing a little bit better, but they had gone through a very difficult time as we pick up chapter 15 here. And you recall, if you were with us in our study of chapter 14, that the king Amaziah, 
He was a good king. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but he wasn't loyal to the Lord with a, a, a heart that was loyal like David's was. And we saw that Amaziah, he started out well. He had some reforms, but what happened over time in his reign, he became prideful. He goes to war against the Edomites. He defeats the Edomites. And you recall that what he decides to do is he wants to do battle against the house of Israel. And it was the king of Israel at that time that would send a message back to Amaziah and, and said, listen, Amaziah, enjoy your victory over the Edomites. But here's the thing. Don't meddle to your own hurt. And Amaziah, in his pride, said, we're going to do battle. So he went to war against the house of Israel. He ended up being defeated there in Beth Shemesh, which is this north of, of Israel. It's right along the, the Jordan Valley. It's a very beautiful place if you ever go there. And there he's defeated. He is taken captive. And then the soldiers and, and the army of Israel come to Jerusalem and actually break through the wall. And they plunder the temple. And they take some of the people away captive. So as we pick up chapter 15, what we see here is that the house of Judah is going through a very difficult time. So let's pick it up at verse 1. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, the son of Amaziah, king of Judah, became king. He was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done except that the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. And verse 5 tells us, Then the Lord struck the king so that he was a leper until the day of his death. So he dwelt in an isolated house. And Jothan, the king's son, was over the royal house, judging the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Azariah, and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Azariah rested with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. And then Jothan, his son, reigned in his place. So coming on this scene here in about 767 B.C., the house of Israel is strong. They've defeated you know, Judah. They uh, take uh, some of the gold and silver out of the temple in Jerusalem. Judah is humiliated, so what they ended up doing is they assassinated Amaziah, and his son Azariah comes on the scene, and now he is king. And he is also known, as we're going to see in verse 13, as Uzziah. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, he is called Uzziah. So here is Azariah, that his name means Jehovah has helped, and they needed help. They needed a godly leader at this time. His throne when he sat on the throne that is he would take a different name and that was Uzziah which means Jehovah is strength and I just want to remind you that as we do what is right in the sight of the Lord that know this that God he is our help and that he is our strength and he will help us and he will strengthen us as we do what is right in the sight of the Lord and he was a good king he reigned for 52 years and he began his reign when he was only 16 years old and he would defeat the, some of the nations around him. He would defeat the Philistines. He took many of the cities and also kept the Ammonites uh, that he defeated them. And they would pay tribute to 
Judah. He was a great military leader, and we get all this information from Second Chronicles. Now, remember that when we go into First and Second Chronicles, it again discusses the reign of David and Solomon, and, and then it talks about only the kings of Judah. So as we go through the books of First and Second Kings, we are looking at not only the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, but there's not a whole lot of information that is given to us. It's kind of a, a very direct uh, and a very brief summary of the rule, rule of the, um, that is the, um, how these kings ruled and, and their summary of how they ruled. So here we see that not a whole lot of details given to us, but as you go to Second Chronicles, when it comes to the kings of Judah, there's more detail given to us. And Uzziah, or Azariah here, he was one that defeated the enemies around him. He became internationally uh, famous as a very strong king. And he was also not only a great military leader and being a great soldier and, and making Judah strong again militarily, he was one that he was an inventor of military weaponry. And, and so he was known for that. And he was also a great builder, and he would build these, uh, these towers. He fortified the cities of Judah, we know from Second Chronicles chapter 26. Uh, he was a great builder and made many projects, uh, building projects. And he was also very skilled in agriculture. And he was one that uh, the land began to prosper as uh, he would uh, specialize in the tillage of soil and, and uh, in um, irrigation and all of this even. And so here is a man that's very capable. He, the nation is being blessed because of him. He is doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. He has brought the nation into prosperity. He's brought the nation into, it's very much uh, respected by the other nations. And also we see that he would be one that is bringing the nation into strength militarily. But then in verse 5, something happens here. Let me read it to you again. Then the Lord struck the king so that he was a leper until the day of his death. So he dwelt in an isolated house. And Jotham the king's son was over the royal house judging the people of the land. So you read this and you think, why this good king who did so many good things for the nation of Judah, why all of a sudden is he struck uh, with uh, leprosy? And it says here very specifically that the Lord struck the king with leprosy. What's going on here? Well, again, as you read Second Chronicles chapter 26, it gives us the details of what had happened. At the end of his reign, what he did is Uzziah, he is famous. He is one that has been blessed. Uh, he is one that has brought the nation into great blessing. He's well known. The people loved him. But what happens is pride begins to creep into his life. He did not learn from the mistakes of his father. His father, who was prideful, defeated the Edomites. He thought, I'm strong. You know, I am great. Come on, Israel, let's go to war. And he ended up being defeated and humiliated and assassinated because of his pride. And here is this individual, Uzziah, that he is the king, he is prideful, and he's, what he does, according to Second Chronicles chapter 26, is he goes into the temple and he begins to burn incense there at the altar of incense. Now, from our Old Testament studies, we know that only the priests, right, are allowed to go into the temple, not the kings. They weren't allowed to go in, but only the priests, not even the Levites, only the direct descendants of Aaron who were called to the priestly ministry were allowed to go into the temple 
and they were the ones that would burn incense there at the altar of incense. And that altar of incense would be right before that curtain, that veil, that would separate the holy place from the most holy place. And behind that veil was the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies once a year in the Day of Atonement. So here is Uzziah. He decides for whatever reason that I want to be a priest, not just a king, but a priest as well. I want to burn incense unto the Lord. He goes in there, and what Second Chronicles chapter 26 tells us is that 80 priests came to confront him. And they said, listen, what are you doing, Uzziah? You're the king. You're not a direct descendant of Aaron. You can't be doing this. And Uzziah says, bug off. I'll do what I want to do. This doesn't concern you. And he continued to do it. And as they were confronting him, all of a sudden leprosy, a spot, hit him right between the eyes. And God struck him with leprosy. And the priest saw it and they, you know, escorted him out. They isolated him because leprosy, of course, was a very terrible disease, a dreadful disease, but also very contagious. So you you had to be isolated. There was no treatment for it. So here he is isolated, and he ends up dying because of that. And I think that there's something very important for us to realize and always remember that pride can creep into our lives, especially when God is using us, when God is, is working in our lives. And we can see it happen. I, I've seen it happen in great men of God that were being used in ministry that all of a sudden they started out in humble beginnings. They were trusting the Lord. They were doing what was right in the sight of the Lord and God began to bless the ministry. And all of a sudden what happened was is they became very prideful. All of a sudden you start thinking, boy, I'm, I'm a great teacher and all these people want to listen to me and they want to come and, and look at you know, what's happening and you can become prideful. And any of us, if the Lord is using you in any way and blessing you in any way, know this, that it is from him and it ought to humble us is what it ought to do, shouldn't it? We should be like David. David, you recall in 2 Samuel chapter 7, I think that chapter 7 was the height of David's life and his reign as the king of Israel. And the Lord came to David and said, David, that you're not going to build me a a temple, your son is, but I'm going to build you a house, David. And you are going to have your throne that's going to be established forever, and from your throne is going to come the Messiah. And David, you recall, was overwhelmed by that. And what did David do? He began to pray and he said, Oh Lord, who am I? Who am I that you would do this for me? And I know that when the Lord blesses and and the Lord continues to just, we see his goodness and I see his goodness, that it should humble us, shouldn't it? That Lord, who am I? Oh, you're blessing. You're using me. Lord, thank you for that. But what happens is, that so oftentimes, if we don't guard our hearts and have the Lord check our hearts, as pride can sneak in. Pride is such a terrible, terrible sin. And we see here that these two kings that did what was right in the sight of the Lord, they ended up in, in their lives in a tragic way, in a way that didn't have to because of pride. They became prideful. Hey, I'll go to war against Israel. Hey, you know what? I'll burn incense at the altar rather than humbling themselves and giving thanks to the Lord. So we need to always be on guard. And of course, the scripture says that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. And he came to destruction literally because of his pride. So here is um, the story of Azariah. 
a good king, uh, reigning for 52 years, but his life ends on a very, very um, sad note because of his pride. So we now switch to the house of Israel up north as we uh, read verse 8. And in the 38th year, Azariah, king of, of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel and Samaria six months. Now keep in mind that we know we're familiar with uh, the prophet Zechariah, his book, uh, one of the books of the minor prophets. But do you realize that there's 29 men in Scripture that are called Zechariah? Here is this Zechariah, that he is the king over Israel, but not for very long, only six months. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. Then Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck and killed him in front of the people, and he reigned in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Zechariah indeed are they written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And this was the word of the Lord which he spoke to Jehu, saying, Your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And so it was. So here's Zechariah. He, he reigns for only a few months. He is assassinated. God fulfilled his word that the house of Jehu would be only to the fourth generation. Um, you recall that it was Jehu. Jehu was used of God to do away with the house of Ahab. Ahab, who was that wicked king of, of Israel and Jezebel. Remember all those chapters that we studied about them? And because it was uh, Jezebel and it was Ahab that had uh, Naboth put to death, that Elijah the prophet came to Ahab and said, listen, you are going to die in battle and your house is going to be you know, destroyed, all your descendants. And Jehu was used of God to do that. But Jehu, even though he was very much an individual that wanted everybody to see how zealous he was for the Lord, look how zealous I am for the Lord, and, and look what I'm doing for the Lord, he was an idol worshiper. So the Lord came along, as we saw, and said, Jehu, to your dynasty is only going to last to the fourth generation, and that's Zechariah here. So the word of the Lord comes true. And always remember, the word of the Lord will always be fulfilled. It will always be fulfilled. And so here is the end of Jehu's dynasty with Zechariah. And then verse 13, as he is assassinated. Now, again, during this time that Jeroboam II, as he had brought the house of Israel into strength um, militarily, economically. There was violence that was in the land. There was depravity and great immorality that was going on. As we go through chapter 15 here, it is not safe to be the king of Israel because we're going to see that four of them are assassinated. They're not going to last very long. And here we saw that even as with Zechariah, that you read that in verse 10, that this Shalom, who's going to be the, the king here, that we're going to read about in verses 13 through 16, he conspired against him, struck and killed him in front of the people. He does it in front of everybody. It's like no big deal. He, he kills them. There's no justice going on at all. This is how bad it is in the house of Israel. So let's read about this one who killed Zechariah, his reign as Shalom, the son of Jabesh became king in the 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah, and he reigned for a full month in Samaria. For Nahum, the son of Gadai, went up from Tersa, came to Samaria and struck Shalom, the son of Jabesh in Samaria, and killed him, and he reigned in his place. Now the rest of the action of Shalom and the conspiracy um, which he led 
Indeed, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. And then from Terza, Menahem attacked Tef, uh, Tisha and all that were there in his territory because they did not surrender. Therefore, he attacked it and all the women there who were with child, he ripped open. So you can see how bad the depravity is, how bad the violence is during this time. And the prophets come along, and you can read, again, like the books of Hosea. You can read the books of Amos. You can see how bad it is. But here's the thing to remember. As we talked a little bit about this in our New Year's Eve prophecy update, that when a nation, when a society says, God, we don't want you. We don't want your light. We don't want to know about your ways. And when we push God out of a society, then what comes in is comes darkness that will, will come in and, and replace the light, and depravity will come in. And here's the thing that you see very clearly in Scripture, that depravity leads to more depravity. We see that that's what Paul is really hitting on when you read Romans chapter 1. He talks about how, you know, man becomes more depraved in society. And we see that even in our own nation. And that's why I encourage you, we need to be praying for our nation and for our leaders. Because the one hope for our nation is that there's a great awakening. That there is repentance and there's a turning to the Lord. But if there is not, if there's a continuing pushing away of the Lord, we're going to see more darkness and more depravity that's going to come in. So here is Shalom. He is uh, assassinated, and, and, um, and uh, we see that Menahem, he reigns in Israel. He's a terrible king, a terrible uh, and vile man, very violent man. In the 39th year of Azariah, king of Judah, as we read verse 17, Menahem, the son of Gedi, became king over Israel and reigned 10 years in Samaria. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not depart from his days, from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. Paul, king of Assyria, came against the land, and Menahem gave his hand might to be with him to strengthen the kingdom under his control. And Menahem uh, exacted the money from Israel, from all the very wealthy, from each man 50 shekels of silver to give to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land. Now the rest of the acts of Menahem and all that he did, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Menahem rested with his fathers, then Pekahiah, his son, reigned in his place. So here is Menahem. He is uh, reigning. He, he reigns for about 10 years, a bad king, and the Assyrians here are coming to power. Uh, the Assyrians are really beginning to flex their muscles, and they're beginning to trouble Israel. And what Menahem does is he pays off Paul, the king of Assyria. Paul, who's also called in scripture Tiglath-Pileser II. We'll see that in the next chapter. He pays them off. And the way he pays them off is there's wealthy people in Israel. So he taxes, puts a heavy tax on the rich to pay off, you know, the king of Assyria, which is not going to help. And so that's what he does here. And we see here that Pekahiah, uh, that he becomes the king after uh, Menahem, uh, as in verse 23, in the 15th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekahiah, the son of Menahem, became king over Israel. And Samaria, he reigned two years. 
He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. Then Pekah, the son of Romalia, an officer of his, conspired against him and killed him in Samaria. So here is uh, Pekahiah that is killed by Pekah. And in the citadel, the king's house, uh, along the Argob and Aria, and with him were 50 men of Gilead. He killed him and reigned in this place. Now the rest of the acts of Pekahiah and all that he did, indeed, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. So here we see that um, Pekahiah is, is killed. He's assassinated by Pekah. And probably the reason that he is is because we know that Pekah, he didn't want anything to do with the Assyrians. He wanted to, to, you know, try to form an alliance with Syria and with Judah to go against the Assyrians. And Pekahiah, here he is, he's, you know, taxing the rich, paying off the king of Assyria. So that's probably why he ended up killing him. So right now in the house of Israel, what we have seen, it's only about 30, 40 years away from them going off into captivity, there's been eight dynasties or families that have been kings. We continue in verse 27. In the 52nd uh, year of Azariah, king of Judah. So this is happening right now at the end of Azariah or Uzziah in Judah at the end of his reign. Just kind of tuck that in the back of your mind. So here it is in the house of Israel up north. And in the 52nd year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekah, the son of Ramalia, became king over Israel. In Samaria, he reigned 20 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. And in the days of Pekah, sin of Israel, Tiglath, Palizer, king of Assyria, came and took Ijon and Abel and Beth, Mahaka and Jan-Oah and Kadesh and Hazar and Gilead and Galilee and all the land of Naphtali and he carried them captive to Assyria. And then Hosea the son of Elah led a conspiracy against Pekah the son of Ramalia and struck and killed him so he reigned in his place in the 20th year of Jotham the son of Uzziah. Now the rest of the acts of Pekah and all that he did indeed they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. So here is Pekah. He reigns for 20 years. The Assyrians are taking the land of Israel. We also know from 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 26, that Tiglath-Pileser, he would also take those two tribes of Reuben and Gad and half of the tribe of Manasseh. Remember, they're on the east side of the Jordan River. He takes them away off into captivity. And he's beginning to come into Naphtali up north. And he's beginning to conquer the house of Israel. So now it's about 733 B.C. And that's really actually when the uh, house of Israel began to go off into um, captivity. And then the final deportation is going to take place in 722 B.C. So this king is assassinated. Hosea Josephus writes, was a close friend of, of Pekah was a very close friend of his, and he ended up uh, assassinating him. And so now we go back to Judah as we finish the chapter. In the second year of Pekah, the son of Ramalia, verse 32, king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jerusha, of the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and he did according to all his father Uzziah had done. And however the high places were not removed, the people still sacrificed and burned incense in the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. 
Now the rest of the acts of Jothan and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the king of Judah? So in those days the Lord began to send Rezan, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramali, against Judah. So Jothan rested with his fathers and was buried with his father in the city of David, his father. Then Ahaz, his son, reigned in his place. So Jothan, he comes on the scene. He's a good king. And what he does is, is that uh, he is the 11th king of Judah, Judah had 20 kings. Israel had 19 kings um, before they each went into captivity. He, Jothan, as it is told, built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. It was a gate that was between the palace and then the temple or the house of the Lord. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 27, verse 6, it says that Jothan became mighty because he prepared his ways before the Lord his God. And the way for you and I to become mighty in the Lord is this, that you prepare your way before the Lord your God. In other words, you are one that you are following after the Lord. You are one that you are serving the Lord. You are one that you're being established in the word of the Lord. And that was Jothan. And he was mighty because of that. You know, we hear a, a lot about be a mighty man or woman of God. And, and the way to do that is trust in him, follow after him, be established in him. And that's how you can become mighty. And so we see here as we finish here that all of a sudden Reason and Pekah, uh, these two guys, uh, Reason is the king of Syria and Pekah the son of Romalia uh, here, um, we see that they're going to conspire against Judah as we go into chapter 16. So in the 17th year of Pekah the son of Romalia, Ahaz the son of Jothan, king of Judah, began to reign. And Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. So now we're introduced to Ahaz. <clears throat> it's about 735 B.C. And Ahaz, the disobedience of Ahaz was great. He is probably, if not the worst, certainly one of the worst kings of Judah, him and Manasseh. Manasseh we'll read about in chapter 21. He rejected the godly example of his father, Jothan, his grandfather, you know, Uzziah. He is an evil, evil individual. Let's look at what he did. He walked in the ways, verse 3, of the kings of Israel, that is idol worship. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire according to the abomination of the nations who the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense in the high places on the hills and under every green tree. Now, to go back, you remember that it was Uzziah, it was Jothan, it was, uh, you know, Amaziah. They did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but they did not tear down the high places. And remember I told you to take note of that because those high places were places that were built actually by the Canaanites when they were worshiping their false gods. And what the people, God's people were doing is they were going back to those high places and they were burning incense. They were supposed to go to Jerusalem, to the temple, weren't they? God had appointed one place for them to go, for them to do the sacrifices and worship the Lord. He says, I don't want you just doing it anywhere. But those places became places of temptation. So now with Ahaz coming in and being a wicked king and an idol worshiper, all of a sudden these high places are established for idol worship once again. And I want to remind us once again, I think it's a good reminder as we start the new year, don't have 
anything of temptation in your home and in your life. Get rid of the high places. Get rid of the high places in your heart and in your life and in your home. You know, what is it that brings temptation? Is it certain channels on the cable? Is it certain things you pull up on a computer? Guard against those things and get rid of those things out of your life. Certain places you hang out, certain people that you hang out with, don't have those high places in your life. And Ahaz, he did. And all of a sudden, he is full in idol worship. And what he does is, as verse 3, is that he um, is one that is passing his son through the arms of Moloch. Moloch was the god that they would actually sacrifice their children on the arms of Moloch there in the Gehenna Valley. And the reason that they did that is because they believed that Moloch would bring them prosperity. We're going to see in the next chapter that the house of Israel is going to be given over to Moloch. They want to, you know, be prosperous. And then we're going to see in chapter 21, Manasseh, the other terrible, terrible king of Judah, he's going to do the same thing. Continuing in depravity. Continuing to even to the point of sacrificing their own children. And we can read this and we can think, oh, you know, that's terrible. Who would ever do that? You realize 3,000 were sacrificed today. 3,000 unborn children aborted today. 3,000 more will be aborted tomorrow. The great sin of our nation. And there are different reasons why abortion happens, but I know one of the reasons is because a mom, a, a couple, they will say, well, you know, I don't want it this baby to interfere with my career. This baby is going to be a burden, so we're going to abort it. It's my choice. And it's sad to see a society that has come to that, the great sin of our nation. Our children sacrificed. And more than that, but I think even as we see that our children are being sacrificed, as they're being sent to school, and they're being told that there is no God. We don't want to talk about God. Oh, you weren't created by God. You're a product of a monkey. And we wonder why our children are rebelling and are very angry. What my prayer, and I know it's your prayer as well, that none of us that are here that are parents, that we would sacrifice our children so we can have our own gain, our own prosperity, I understand we have to work. We have to make a living. And it's great when things are going well, but please make it the priority that, you know what, for me as a parent, for us as a couple, we're going to make it a priority to nurture and raise our children in the ways of the Lord. Parents, grandparents, our children need us. They are so precious. And I know that you know that. But may they be the priority as you raise your children in the ways of the Lord. That we wouldn't sacrifice them. That we would make it a priority to spend time with them and raise them in a godly way. Micah the prophet, that he's ministering at this time in Judah. Let me read to you what the, the, the house of Judah was like at this time. Is Micah chapter 7, I'll read, The faithful man has perished from the earth. And there is no one upright among men. They all lie and wait for blood. 
Every man hunts his brother with a net, that they may successfully do evil with both hands. The prince asks for gifts. The judge seeks a bribe. The great man utters his evil desire, so they scheme together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is sharper than the thorn hedge. The day of your watchman and your punishment comes. Now shall be their perplexity. Do not trust in a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom. For son dishonors father and daughter rises against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Therefore I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the Lord my God for my salvation. My God will hear me. It talks about how bad the condition was. You couldn't trust anyone. And those who were doing evil were scheming together. And, and mother against, you know, daughter and, and, and son against, you know, father. And, and, and all of this that has taken place is talking about everybody was out for themselves. And we see a philosophy in our society, I believe, that you, you are to be focused on yourself, out for your own gain, you know, and the focus is on self. When the Bible comes along for you and, and for me and tells us that we're to die to self and pick up our cross and follow after him. And what my prayer is, is that we in the church here, that we would have the love of Jesus Christ that would radiate from our lives, that people will see that we're different, that we're not out just for ourselves and our own interests, but we want to look out for the interests of others as well and show the love of Jesus Christ to others. So it's a terrible time at this time, and we continue, verse 5, Reason, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to make war, and they besieged Ahaz, but not overcome him. And at that time, Reason, king of Syria, captured Eloth for Syria and drove the man of Judah from Eloth. And then the Edomites went to Eloth and dwelt there to this day. So what's happening here is what we read about on Christmas Eve, remember? Isaiah chapter 7. Remember Ahaz, he's the king. And he gets word that, that Reason and Pekah, they're coming against him, the king of Syria and Israel, and, and they want to kill Ahaz and put their own king on the throne so they can form this alliance against the Assyrians. And remember Isaiah the prophet was told in Isaiah chapter 7, you go to Ahaz and you go and you tell him that this isn't going to happen. That what's going to happen is Pekah is going to be killed, and which he is. And you know what? As far as Israel, it's, it's, not going to, it's not going to come to pass. They're, they're not going to kick you off the throne. And it was Isaiah that said, Be established in the word of the Lord given to you, Ahaz. But Ahaz, because his heart is not right with the Lord, what happens is, is he wouldn't believe the word that Isaiah was going to give to him. And Isaiah even said, Ask for a sign. Ask for a sign in the heaven and in the depths of the earth that you should know that God, what he's saying is true. And Ahaz said, I won't ask for a sign. And he's trying to figure out his own plan, trying to figure out what it is that he can do himself. And you recall that it was Isaiah that said, okay, God's going to give you a sign anyway, and that is that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And his name shall be called Emmanuel. If you're here tonight... And maybe you have a reason and a pika that is coming against you or a circumstance that seems to surround you and you're wondering, what do I do? 
I want you to be established in the word of the Lord. And I want you to remember this, Emmanuel, that God is with you. And he'll never leave you or forsake you. And you turn to him and you trust in him. And you rest in his love. So what was it that Ahaz was going to do? Come up with his own plan. Well, let's continue reading as we'll finish the chapter here in just a little bit. So we see that Ahaz, verse 7, sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and save me from the hand of king Assyria and from the hand of the king of Israel who rise up against me. And Ahaz took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house, and he sent it as a present to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria heeded him, and the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it and carried his people captive to Kerr and, and killed Reason. And now King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and saw an altar that was in Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to ur the priest, to design of the altar and its pattern according to all its workmanship. Then Urijah, the priest, built an altar according to all the king Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Urijah, the priest, made it before king Ahaz came back from Damascus. So what happens is, is that he takes the gold and silver off the doorposts of the temple, Ahaz does. He sends it to the king of Assyria. He says, listen, can you do in Syria? Go and attack them. Can you help me out? So that's what the king of Assyria does. He goes and he kills the king of Syria, Reason. And then what he does is the king of Assyria sitting on the throne there. He's taken over Damascus. And what happens is Ahaz goes up to see him. Now, it was very unusual for the king of Judah to go to another country. But he wasn't go, going to just visit. He was going to give thanks to the king of Assyria and also to say that, you know what, um, I am one that um, I am subject to you. Uh, um, it was uh, an official act of submission to, to the king of Assyria. And while he's there, he sees that the king of Assyria has this, this altar, this, this idol that's there. And Ahaz says, I like that. I think that's really cool. And he may have thought that idol helped you, king of Assyria. So I want to make one. And I want to put it in the temple in Jerusalem. And it'll probably help me. So he calls for the priest there in Jerusalem to come and make a design and to have one be put there in Jerusalem. And that's what happens as you read the rest of the chapter. You read in verse 12, as he would make that altar, bring it to Jerusalem, he burned his burnt offerings and his grain offerings, and he poured his drink offerings and sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. And he also brought the bronze altar, which was before the Lord from the front of the temple, from between the new altar and the house of the Lord, and put it in the north side of the new altar. Then King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, on the great new altar, burn the morning burnt offerings and the evening grain offerings and the king's burnt sacrifice and his grain offering with the burnt offering of all the people of the land, their grain offerings and their drink offerings and sprinkle it and all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of sacrifice and the bronze altar should be for me to inquire by. And thus Uriah the priest, according to all that King Ahaz commanded. And so what we see here is what Ahaz does is he puts it there. He takes the altar of sacrifice where the sacrifices were done. He puts it on the north side. He has this altar here. And notice here, he's, he's very religious, isn't he? he? He brought the morning burnt offerings, the evening grain offerings, the burnt sacrifice, the grain offerings, all of this on this altar. I think there's a very important lesson. And it's simply this. 
Ahaz saw something that was of the world. This, this idol, and he says, I like that. I want to bring it into the church, so to speak. And I think that we, the church, need to be really careful that we don't see things of the world and say, I like that. That'll help us. That'll help us to grow. That'll help us to have more people. That'll help us to be, you know, more popular. So why don't we bring it into the church and we'll Christianize it. We'll be religious. And you see more and more ministries, unfortunately, that are doing that. And as much as God gives me wisdom and discernment, I never want to do that. I don't want to bring the things of the world in here and say, let's Christianize it. Hey, let's have pub theology, man. We go down to the bar and we'll have a Bible study and it'll be a great time and the guys can sit around and drink beer. Why don't we do that of the world and we'll make it religious. At least we're having a Bible study. And what happens is more entertainment and performance comes in and what happens is you guys become nothing but an audience. And you're much more than that. You're the body of Christ. And I know that the popular church growth programs are do these certain things and adopt this way and all of that. And they're not all bad, but you know what I want to rely on? The Word of God. And the power of God and the Spirit of God to lead us and to guide us. And I commend you guys for coming out on Wednesday nights to go through two chapters of Second Kings. And I hope it's been a blessing to you. And there's application that when you go home, you can say, yes, Lord, I learned tonight from your word. And we learn as a church that we don't want to take those things of the world and bring them into the church, try to Christianize it, be religious about it. You know what, in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, that we covered not long ago, that's where you first see the word church in the New Testament. That word in the Greek literally means to be, to be set aside. We've been set aside to be different than the world. And this is a very special thing. This thing called the church. And we want to honor the Lord in everything that we do here. One more point and then we're going to go to the communion table. The altar was put on the north side. You know what was north of Solomon's temple? Solomon built this temple on Mount Moriah. When they built the temple, they cut into Mount Moriah, but on the north side, on top of the mountain, was Solomon's quarries. And when Solomon was making all the stones for the temple that is still standing at this time, on the north-facing side, there was an imprint of a skull and it would be a thousand years later after Solomon was making those stones on the north side of the temple that they called it Golgotha in the Hebrew tongue, Calvary. When you read Leviticus chapter 1, it's interesting that it tells us that the burnt offering, and Jesus was the fulfillment of all those offerings, that they would take the sacrifice and put it on the north side of the altar Jesus was our sacrifice. He went to Mount Calvary, Golgotha, and he died for you and for me. And he didn't die for us so that we can become like the world.
He saved us from the world so that we can be a light to the world. And as we come to the communion table now, it's a time of worship. And as we'll open up communion tables as you come up and you take the elements, this is the new covenant in my blood, Jesus would say, for the forgiveness of sin. This is my body broken for you and always remember what he did for you. And it's a time for us to be thankful, to be at awe once again of the provision of our Lord as he went to the cross of Calvary for all of us. And we are indeed blessed. And it should humble us. And it should cause us to say, Lord, I want to prepare my way before you because you went the way of the cross. So I'm going to die to self, pick up my cross, and follow after you. But tonight, I worship you and remember what you did for me. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for this time and study of your word. And Lord, we thank you for these chapters that can be ignored. But as we take our time, we can learn some very important lessons. So now, as we come to the communion table, Father, I just want to pray. If there's anybody that may be here in the sanctuary or out in the coffee shop, have you made a commitment? I know that most of us, if not all of us, have done, but if there is anybody here, have you made a commitment to Christ? If you've never done that, we want you to know that Jesus loves you and died for you. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And shortly after that, he would take a cross and and he would walk down the narrow streets of Jerusalem called the Via Della Rosa and out to Damascus Gate and to that place of execution called Calvary where they pinned him to a cross because he died for you. You can't save yourself. You can't be religious enough. And he died for all manner of sin. All of your sins were placed upon him as he died on that cross. And so now there's forgiveness of sin. There's right relationship that comes with the Father only through Jesus Christ and the hope of heaven. You see, don't come to the communion table if you haven't surrendered your heart to Jesus because it's for the believer who is once again remembering what Jesus did for them. But will you embrace what he did for you first if you've never done that? Today is the day of salvation. And Romans says that if you believe in your heart the Lord Jesus and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So you can pray right where you're sitting. And that's for you if you're out in a coffee shop in the overflow. That Jesus, I believe that you're the son of God who died for me on Calvary's cross. And you made provision. And now I turn to you and I surrender my heart to you fully. Be my personal Lord and Savior. I confess that I've fallen short of the glory of God. Forgive me of my sins. Be my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Help me to live for you all the days of my life. And now as we come and we hold the communion elements in our hands, may this be a time of...